This is Blurring the Lines with Adam Bell and Peter Nicolaitis, IT entrepreneurs. Adam and Peter take on the topics of technology, business, life, and the pursuit of happiness and blur them together in the 21st century. Episode 18, Don't Let Hackers Get the Best of Your Business. Peter and Adam joined Tim Richter in a roundtable discussion concerning ransomware. The guys discuss how business owners should be protecting their computer infrastructure. This is a collaborative follow-up to Peter's white paper, 10 Critical Steps to Survive a Ransomware Attack. Not a bad webinar, considering that the rest of the time, Tim and Peter do not talk to each other. Good morning. My name is Tim Richter, of course, with Arcor Technologies, and I'm here today with Adam Bell of Sublime Computer Services in Nashville, Tennessee, and uh, Peter Nicolaitis with Paradigm Consulting Company in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Today, we're going to be talking about ransomware and other security threats that are currently threatening the computers and networks around the world. Uh, each of us is going to take a part of the description, remedies, and recovery from these threats and then give a time for questions. Since we are in different geographic areas, I, at the end we're going to be offering gifts to anyone in the, our individual areas who are attending the webinar today, so listen closely. I guess the most prolific and dangerous of the computer viruses in the field today is ransomware. Ransomware in its current form is a relatively new type of malware that can restrict access to a handful of files or entire computer or even a complete file server. Uh, law enforcement, according to a Homeland Security report, has neither the time nor the resources to track down the culprits and is leaving it up to the individual uh, businesses to essentially uh, take care of themselves and uh, work to protect themselves. Uh, the distributors of ransomware uh, really don't discriminate. Uh, they will just as likely infect a person's home computer as a business. Uh, businesses like the Hollywood Presbyterian Hospital in Los Angeles who lost access to all their patients' records for more than a week. Uh, New Jersey School District uh, computer network was brought down by ransomware infections, forcing the school officials to postpone exams. Even closer to my home here, the city of Durham was infected earlier this year. That's right, right here in the Triangle. According to uh, antivirus company Kaspersky, almost 180,000 computers were targeted for encryption-based ransomware in 2014-15 and over 700,000 in 2015-16. Many experts predict that that number of incidents will more than double by the end of this year. So let's talk real quick about who I am and why I'm here talking today. My name is Tim Richter, uh, co-founder and security expert of Arcor Technologies. My background includes IT and network design work for companies like Lockheed Martin, the U.S. Prote Environmental Protection Agency, Duke University, and GlaxoSmithKline. I started my business more than 10 years ago because I saw that small to medium-sized businesses needed the same level of support that larger Fortune 100 companies had, and that was woefully lacking in the area. It's become my passion to deliver the same expert service to this market. And this webinar and roundtable is how I can continue with that passion by helping you, the professionals here today in Raleigh, Durham, Chapel Hill area, to protect yourselves and move your businesses out of the crosshairs of cybercriminals.
Now let's take a moment uh, to talk about what ransomware is and how it infects your computer. A user or machine is infected by things like email attachments, a link or download on a website, or an already compromised server. Then a piece of code will run on the machine or device, and a key is exchanged either on the machine or over the internet, then using that key, uh, the files are encrypted locally. This key is created by multiplying two very large prime numbers together, which makes it almost impossible to decrypt. In addition to the files on that computer, uh, all the drives and network map drives, online drives such as Dropbox, Microsoft OneDrive and the like are encrypted. Finally, an extortion or request for money is displayed on the screen. Normally, you'll not even know it's happening until you get notified and by that time, it's too late. As I said, once the process is complete, you'll be locked out of your files, the data on your computer. Normally, you can still use the computer. However, the current files will be encrypted and any new files such as Word documents, emails, and the like will be encrypted as you're creating or using them. As I had talked about, ransomware is a relatively new virus in its current form. However, it originated in Russia around 2005 in the form of Trojan GP Coder. The first generation of this ransomware mainly posed as a fake spyware removal tool or performance enhancement tool for your computer. By 2010, the tactics used by ransomware changed and it began posing as a software to take care of viruses that warn the user that the computer was infected. The malware usually offered to charge the alarmed user about $30 to $50 for a useless antivirus program. In reality, the program would just keep the virus and continue notifying the user, encouraging them to pay more. By 2013, we saw a rise in sophistication and tactics by the ransomware creators. Uh, this was also the year that scareware became more prominent. This variation locks the computer completely and usually demands money by posing by an authoritative company such as the CIA, FBI, or even Microsoft. As you'll notice, each variation of ransomware, the ransomware software, asked for money in exchange for something that they would do or to allow you access to your infected computer. Today, ransomware has morphed into the crypto version that we've been talking about here. The first completely disruptive crypto ransomware was dubbed CryptoLocker in 2013. This early generation malware was found to be easily decrypted by many antivirus programs. However, news of the virus being easily decrypted made it back to the criminals and they created a new version of ransomware that uh, has encryption levels that are almost impossible to get around. Newer variations that have been encountered are CryptoWall, TrueCrypt, and TeslaCrypt. All versions demanding a certain amount of money to be paid to unlock files. Normally you're given an option to pay a smaller amount, such as $500 per infected computer or server, and after a few days it'll double. And after a short while it will either double again or completely lock out your files. Since its original incarnation, 56 types of crypto ransomware have been created with variants growing every single day. 
most of them with many, many variations. Currently, antivirus companies, technical nonprofits, and even the U.S. government are working together to come up with a solution that can protect users from this type of scam. However, nothing has been found yet. So we talked a little bit about uh, how ransomware can lock you out of your files and uh, the history. Now let's talk about how a user will actually see an invitation to be encrypted. Normally, it will come in the form of either pop-ups, unsolicited ads, or a website. Ads will appear as banners or pop-ups on a website and will redirect the user to a link containing a ransomware virus if mistakenly clicked on. Many of the ads appear to be normal to the average user, so it's best to never click on any ads on a website outside of a search engine or a known trusted site. Cybercriminals purchase web traffic and web space to specifically target certain regions where they want to release malicious programs. Another commonly used method of cybercriminals is to employ the use of botnets to send spam email to thousands or even millions of people at once. In the email are links to ransomware viruses. Attachments to the emails can also be used to contain the virus itself. Either way, the email received will seem suspicious. Many times, cybercriminals try to bait users into opening emails by disguising them as messages dealing with job searches, energy bills, mail delivery notifications, tax returns, invoices, or even fake traffic offenses. It is also possible for cybercriminals to buy redirected website traffic and point to infected websites which, when clicked on, could download and install the malware. According to antivirus company Symantec, these drive-by downloads are the most common way of getting infected with ransomware viruses today. And ransomware is so effective that it's now starting to be written to infect Android phones and other websites. The dangerous part of this is a website could either be brought down or it could even be used to infect even more computers going to it. Before we move on uh, to ways you can protect yourself, which Peter will be talking about, let's take a look at the results of a few infections. Presbyterian Hospital in Los Angeles was infected and their complete medical records system was locked out. They had to use pen and paper to monitor patients for over a week. They ended up paying the ransom and received access to their data again. They were lucky. Many do the same and never receive access. Ransomware recently hit NASCAR. The Circle Sport Levine Racing family recently paid off ransomware hackers after one of its test computers got infected with the TrueCrypt malware. The laptop was quickly isolated but left the team's crucial test data locked up for two days before a big race. Dave Winston, a NASCAR Sprint Cup Series crew chief, said, just knowing we could lose everything that we have worked so hard to achieve over the years in 48 hours was terrifying. The data that they were threatening to take from us was priceless. We couldn't go one day without it greatly impacting the team's future success. This was a complete foreign experience for us and we had no idea what to do. What we did know was that if we lost the files and didn't get them back, we would lose years worth of work, millions of dollars. 
the University of Calgary learned that it needed to have policies in place and greater protection when it had valuable research data encrypted by ransomware this year. Even the city of Durham also fought against it. Not one, but two ransomware attacks. It was lucky that they have a good backup policy and the files were able to be restored. They also have recently put in place multiple anti-malware and firewall layers, according to Kerry Good, the city's uh, director of technology solutions. Most people feel that antivirus alone is enough to protect against known threats. However, according to Webroot, one of the largest antivirus companies, 90% malware threats are now tailored to the computer that they're now infecting. Does this mean that a hacker will write the software for your particular computer? No. What it means is that the infected software will look at the environment and adapt itself around what it's protecting. I'm not saying there's nothing can be done to protect against it. I'm now going to pass the presentation over to Peter Nicolaitis of Paradigm Consulting Company who will explain what you can do to prevent ransomware, many times stopping it in its tracks. Hi, Peter. Good morning, Tim. Let me just share my screen here, and we should be ready to roll. All right, well, thank you for that intro. Uh, <clears throat> as uh, <clears throat> excuse me, Tim said, uh, I'm going to uh, talk a little bit about uh, how you can defend yourself from ransomware. I've dealt with a number of firms in my experience, and in many cases, especially with smaller firms, they'll purchase one security device program, something like uh, antivirus or a firewall, and they'll think, okay, we're secure. But I'm going to show you real quick why this is simply not the case. So uh, first, a little bit about me. Uh, as Tim said, my name is Peter Nicolaitis. I'm the founder and president of Paradigm Consulting Company. I've been an IT uh, consultant and security expert for some time now. I've got a string of letters after my name. And uh, I've got over 20 years of professional experience in information technology, uh, with the last 10 being focused on information security. So my clients have ranged from early phase startups with a handful of employees, all the way up to uh, the top of the Fortune 10, including Chase, Marsh, and Merck. And presently, I'm engaged in a contract with a level one trauma center as we develop their security operations center from the ground up. So. First off, security is an arms race. Uh, software is written by humans, and humans make mistakes. Mistakes are fixed in software patches and updates. So the vast majority of software updates that come out today are to address flaws in security. Every day, new flaws in software are found, and when these flaws are discovered, the best outcome is that it's discovered by one of the good guys the, they notify the publisher who releases a fix for the flaw before it can cause problems, and that comes out to your computer and you're safe. Uh, sadly, this is usually not what happens. Normally what happens is that a bad actor discovers the flaw and does not tell anybody. And instead, they develop an exploit for the flaw, allowing them to do things like completely take over your computer as if they were sitting at it and locking you out of your files. So when an exploit appears before the flaw is known by its publisher or security firms, it's referred to as a zero day because you have zero days of notice. Traditional antivirus cannot protect you against this because it doesn't even know about the threat. <clears throat> so patch. What are patches? 
excuse me, clear my throat there. Uh, remember, this is an arms race. So software patches and updates are generally fixes that come from the publisher, whether it's Microsoft, Apple, Google, or somebody else, to fix problems, and again, usually security problems, with their products. Now, just about every high-profile hack that you have heard about has involved some sort of unpatched system. So therefore, it's important that the patches for your operating systems, whether it's Windows, Macintosh, yes, Macintosh users, you, you can't be smug on this one, you have security issues too, and I should say we, because I have a Mac, um, whether you're using an iOS, an iPhone, or an Android phone, or whether you're running Linux, as well as major applications like Microsoft Office, Firefox, iTunes, Google Chrome, it's important that all of these get patched as soon as possible because literally the clock is ticking when these threats are discovered. So here's the problem. Most small businesses just don't have any strategy to have on how to handle this. Uh, as I said, I'm presently working as a senior security analyst for a large healthcare provider. Uh, and they have their patching cycle down to one to two days. So for example, Microsoft releases a patch on the 20th day of the month. By the 21st or 22nd day of the month, they've generally got that rolled out. And that's good. Why? Because they got hit hard a few years ago that affected a very large percentage of their systems. So the problem is when we work with smaller firms, we often see patches that have been available for weeks, months, sometimes even years without being installed. Why? Well, because smaller firms just assume that their staff will take care of this, or that it's taken care of automatically, or they're completely unaware of the need to even install patches. So if your strategy is to let your users just handle this themselves, they're not doing it. And you shouldn't be fooled for a second into thinking that they are, because it's simply not a priority for them. Just think about it. They've got things to do. They've got to do their job. And unless their job description is patch the computer systems, they're not going to focus on that. And if you let them do this themselves, they're probably also installing malware that disguises itself to look like legitimate software patches. So it's a real problem. So. If you don't know for sure that this is being done, you should assume that it's not, and you should check with your IT provider and find out what your patch schedule is. Now, I know I just told you that there are a lot of zero-day exploits out there and that these are malicious programs with no known fixes. That's true. However, again, usually when we see systems get hit by malware, it's stuff that's been roaming around for weeks, months, and again, even years after the fix was released. And there's no level, uh, sorry, no excuse for this level of complex <clears throat> complacency. So let me talk about security for a minute and the concept of least privilege. It's a simple idea. You have the rights and permissions to do what you need to do and only what you need to do and no more. Here's a couple examples. Um, does every employee of your company have a master key allowing them to get into any and all rooms, offices, closets, or safes in the premises? Does every employee have the ability to write checks from the company checkbook? Does every employee have the ability to sign contracts and enter into new business agreements or hire new people? Probably not. Do, for instance, do you have keys to your own home? Of course you do. Does your next door neighbor? Well, maybe. 
you know, if you know them and trust them and you want them to hold a backup in case they need to get in while you're out or you get yourself locked out, sure. Does everybody on your street have keys to your house? Probably not. Why? They don't need it. So we don't give that to them. So, you know, unless you have like two employees or maybe only two houses on your street, you should have answered no to all of those questions. And by the same logic, not everyone in your organization should have the ability to install programs or perform system level tasks with admin rights on your network. Now, what are admin rights? This is what lets you make changes to your systems. Not just the documents and the data, we're not talking about making new spreadsheets, but the programs and the way the system runs. So admin rights let you install software. Now let's remember, malware programs are software. Can you see where I'm going with this? That's right, admin rights by extension let you install malware. So when you set up a new computer, the first thing it asks you to do is create a new user account. And this account has full rights to install software and make changes on your system. You only need these rights to make changes to your system, but most people don't even know what that means, and they run with these elevated permissions all the time. This is a bad practice, as it's very easy to be duped into installing something that you don't want on your system, something like malware. And if you let your staff install programs anytime they want, you're giving them the ability to also install ransomware and other malware on their systems. So even if they would never do so intentionally, they can be fooled into doing so. And this sort of thing happens every day. Now, as Tim mentioned, the most popular way that systems get infected with ransomware today is via email attachments. So the rule of thumb is, if you weren't expecting it, don't open it. It's really simple. And if, I tell you, if a lot of the firms that I did followed this, uh, this procedure, I would not have as much work as I have to do. Uh, unfortunately, people just don't follow this rule of thumb. Earlier this year, I worked with three, count them, three different vice president or higher people in my clients who said almost exactly this phrase. All three, different firms, different people. I received an attachment from somebody I didn't know, and I wanted to see what it was, so I opened it. I had one tell me, I thought it was a little suspicious, but I went ahead and looked at it anyway. <laughs> so curiosity, they say, killed the cat, and it also killed the VP's computer. Uh, red flags should have been flying as soon as they said, from someone I didn't know. So. The moral of the story is you can't trust people, even high-level executives, not to open attachments. So you need to have a strong filter. You have to have technical controls in this place to protect your system and your users. This is something you need to work with a competent IT provider on. And you know, if you have one that you work with now and you trust, wonderful. Ask them, how are we filtering email attachments? Right Now, this also means that some days you might have something that you do want get blocked, all right? Again, you can work with your IT provider to fine tune this so that you balance security and convenience so you can do your job and still stay safe. Now, similarly, the next most popular way that systems get affected is, as Tim said, by drive-by downloads. The internet is a very, very scary place. It is not all rainbows, ice cream, and unicorns. So when you connect your computer to the internet, 
whether you're at work, you're at home, you're in a hotel or a coffee shop, you are literally milliseconds away from every creep, scum, hacker, or terrorist on the internet. I'm not making this up, and I'm not exaggerating. Information can circle the internet in milliseconds all around the world, making it geographically irrelevant as to where an attacker could be. So whether it's a hacker in Romania or a kid across the street, the functional difference is negligible. So you have to have a firewall between yourself and the internet, and also between yourself and other people in that coffee shop or that hotel or that conference room, or especially with my startup clients in that co-working space. Because without this, malicious programs, even your friends or colleagues' systems can be attacking you without their knowledge. So as I said, the second most popular way that we're seeing systems get infected today is by drive-by downloads. And this means you go to a website, and without you taking any additional action, just visiting this website, your browser goes ahead and downloads and executes programs that infect your systems with malware. So because of this, you need to have some sort of filter to screen out malicious websites, including good websites that have been compromised before your computer is allowed to view them. So earlier this year, if you paid attention, this made major headline news, we saw many high-profile websites, including the New York Times, Wired Magazine, America Online, all being compromised because they were unwittingly serving up malware in their online advertisements. A good content filter will keep you safe from these. Now these attacks hit close to home, not only talking about clients of mine, but I've had family members receive these. And just last week I was in the local grocery store, okay, full disclosure, I admit it, I was in the local liquor store, but I was only buying wine. The computer behind the cash register was reading aloud, very loud, a ransom demand. They claimed that the computer was infected with a virus, that the user had to take immediate action to address this by calling the number on the screen. What do you think would happen if they did? Well, that person would have been told that he had reached the help desk. And for a nominal fee, usually, uh, Tim, you gave us some numbers. I'm seeing around $300 seems to be the average these days. Uh, they would fix this problem. Well, here's the trick. What the, under the best case scenario in this case is the person is out 300 bucks. But usually what happens is they now go further and infect your system with even more ransomware, more malware, and get even deeper hooks into your system. And then, of course, they demand more money. So, yeah, sometimes those criminals are nice enough just to let you go, but <laughs> really, you want to trust them? So, another real crucial step to preventing the spread of ransomware, and this is important because although the first thing I covered was least privilege and dropping those admin rights, a lot of ransomware today doesn't even need administrative rights. And here's the reason. Most small firms we work with have a single file repository on their network. Every staff member has full access to it and all of its contents. So that means anyone from the CEO all the way down to a lowly intern has the ability to inadvertently encrypt every single document in the company. Compartmentalizing your data into silos where people have the least privilege required to do their job is a way of keeping a virus outbreak contained. 
and from running rampant throughout your organization. So this is another example of least privilege where you achieve security by limiting the amount of power you have. So let's look at some examples. Uh, most small enterprises will, uh, like I said, they have a single uh, server. They have all their data on it. So this will be usually shared in a folder called company or shared or files. Those folders are then shared to everybody. And within that folder, maybe we have a folder called clients, another one called projects, another called procedures, or maybe they're sorted by department. So we have HR and accounting, or sometimes we have them by user. So there's one for Alice, another one for Bob, and another one for Charles. Often the only thing preventing inappropriate access from occurring is the honor system. And given the number of times we've it's in the wrong locations because users were poorly trained and didn't know where to stay at, store them, this is anything but a reliable means to secure your company's data. So you need to first be able to classify your data files and identify who should have access. Now this doesn't have to be complicated. If you have a bunch of accounting documents, the accounting staff probably needs access to them. If you have a bunch of R&D information, make sure only the R&D or the engineering group has access to them. It's pretty simple. So you want to start by taking an inventory of what your company has for data and then look at your team. You want to divide this all up into logical groups and then assign permissions based on role and need, not because eh, they might need this someday, right, or because they want access. For some reason, this makes perfect sense with financial information. Unless your firm practices open book accounting, you probably don't give everybody access to the entire uh, payroll registry and all the sensitive financial info. But the same should be true for all data in your enterprise. So you'll probably have to work with your IT provider to make this happen, but at least you can start by identifying the various share points on your network, and these are often different drive letters if you're using Windows, and identify who needs access to things. It's not hard, does take a little bit of time. And if you do this, one outbreak in one spot will be contained so it won't spread to all the others. Now here's another thing. What antivirus companies don't want to tell you today unless they're on the cutting edge. Um, by default, remember that computers are general purpose devices. And this means that even if you purchase a computer to do one thing in mind, like running payroll, it can do several other things, like email and shopping, surfing the web, playing games, and downloading malicious programs to eat your data. So they can do a lot. And the way most antivirus works today is a blacklist approach. They maintain a registry of threats, they identify what's bad, and they block it. So again, this is the default. The problem is because of the proliferation of bad malware that we're seeing today, literally hundreds of thousands of new viruses coming out every month, antivirus just can't keep up. So the inverse, is where most antiviruses are heading if they're not there already, and a lot are not there already. And that's a whitelist approach. So instead, what we do is we don't try to identify all the bad. Just think about it. There's too much. So instead, we identify the good. And we decide we're only going to allow what we need to run on a system. So if you need to run Word, Excel, and Outlook to do your job, and that's it, your computer can be configured to run just Word, Excel, and Outlook. It's great. It makes it a lot simpler. I mean, think about it. 
you know, a machine out on your production floor or a bank teller line PC probably shouldn't be accessing things like payroll records or surfing the web. So there are lots of third-party applications that can do this, but you, again, you want to work with a competent system administrator or IT provider because it's very easy to overlook important things and cripple your system if you don't do it properly. Another thing that is often overlooked, and by often I mean very, very often, is training. Uh, I have never started work with a new client where the business owner approached me and said, you know, I don't think our staff doesn't know how to use our computer systems. With very few exceptions, it's just assumed that everybody knows how to use a computer and that's all required to get the job done. Let alone questions about efficiency and effectiveness, this completely overlooks the question of information security. Now, as I said, new threats are emerging every day and I'm not exaggerating. When I tell you that most users can't tell the difference between a real software update or a bogus update warning, that's true. Most users can't. They can't tell if they should click to apply an update or they should not click because it's fake. Yet in most smaller enterprises, users are left to their own devices to make these decisions. And when you compound this with how effective phishing emails and now telephone scams can be, it's a recipe for disaster for your business. I was once told by the CFO of a multi-million dollar manufacturing firm, when I see a link that says irs.gov, I tend to trust it. And that's the problem, because links can lie. Now, I can't demonstrate this for you right now, but you'll see on my screen there's a link that says www.irs.gov. It is trivial, I mean trivial, to make that take you to evilbadguy.com instead or something else. And that's the problem. You could click on this. You have no idea where it's going to go. Now, you'll see here it, hire, it hovers over and it says irs.gov. But I could point that anywhere I wanted, and most people wouldn't even notice. So simply assuming that your staff know how to spot a scam when they see one is just begging for your business to be attacked. People need to be trained, and they need to be trained continually to make sure that they stay aware of the threats that you're facing. It's not just about knowing what to click, it's about knowing what not to click. Now, arguably, and I'm not arguing very hard, the most important thing to have to defend yourself from ransomware is rock-solid backups. So at this point, I'm going to hand the presenter role over to Adam so he can tell you about this. Adam, would you like to uh, talk a little bit about backing up our data? Yes, I would. Thank you, Peter. Well, one of the things that, that I'm going to hit on that is also what you were talking about is a holistic view. It's, I mean, everything that you said is holistic good computing, you know? So not just the backups. I'm, I'm hearing me, Stuart. Can you? Can you Muted. their channel? So, okay, so I'm going to get started. I am Adam Bell. I'm the president of Sublime Computer Services, and we're going to continue on and talk about backups and how backups can help uh, prevent hackers from getting the best of your business. Let's go. All right. So I'm Adam Bell. I'm IT. Uh, professional. I've been doing this since 1997. I graduated from Austin P. in Clarksville, Tennessee. 
Um, I've worked in big business. I've worked in small business. Uh, I spent time in the enterprise with HCA here in Nashville and J.C. Bradford is a financial institution here in Nashville where we supported uh, thousands of computers. Uh, in 2003, uh, I worked with a startup where we took the company from five computers to over 100 users throughout the United States. So I'm familiar with working with uh, small businesses, getting them up into big business. Uh, I work, of course, in Nash. Uh, not going to talk about or compare myself to Peter and Tim, but I've been intentionally building the best premier IT service company in Nashville since 2008. We currently support 42 different companies with 650 computers throughout the United States. Okay, so what I'm going to cover, and, and I'm glad I've got the whole 45 minutes here to cover all my, my material. I'm just joking. Okay, so why do you need backups? The elements of a successful backup system. What are the things that you need in place to make this thing work? What are the different types of backups? There are different kinds of backups, and not all of them, they, they have their benefits. Each one has their benefits, but they don't necessarily do everything that you may need in your organization. And then in, the, in this scenario where we're talking about malware, it has hit the fan, and you need to know that your backup plan will work. All right, so here are those where you need to have a backup. And as I said, this is kind of holistic, but at the same holistic view, it's going to keep the, the malware and uh, ransomware, if they, get, if they get on the systems, you're able to recover. Okay, so a user accidentally de deletes a file or changes a file. That one's a nice, benign problem. Uh, the server gets a virus, not as benign. You've got a major issue here. Now you've got to get files back. You've got to get your system back. A user gets a virus and infects everything that they touch, which is the malware that we're talking about here. A user opens an email attachment and adversely affects the entire manufacturing facility because all the files that they had access to are now encrypted because they were not doing data siloing. They were allowing everybody to have permission to everything. Bad, bad, bad. Okay, and the server has had hardware failures. My wife is a nurse, and the, the term she uses is TMB. That server has had too many birthdays. Just old, the hardware's failed, and that happens. Or a server gets damaged by water, fire, or any other imaginable issue. Okay, so the elements of a successful backup system. Okay, so you want to have a disaster and recovery plan. That's the big plan if everything goes south. You've got to have one of those in place. Fast recovery, you've got to have, it's, you've got to be able to get your files back in the amount of time that you need to keep your business running. Virtualization of failed servers. The ability to use virtualized servers are going to help you recover faster. Remote off-site storage. This really is part of the disaster and recovery plan, meaning you've got off-site storage of your backups in case in case you lose your entire office, you've got this backup plan. And then 24-7 monitoring. You've got to make sure that these things are being monitored. Okay, so we're going to go into the disaster and recovery plan. What's the plan? Oh, boy. The com it, it is a complete plan that asks all of the questions 
to what do you need to get your systems back up and running. So you're sitting down with the, the business owner and the IT or whoever the appropriate business person is and the IT person sit down and talk and say, these are all the things that, that we need to be back up and running. Oh, nice. All right. So <laughs> there's a basic plan for every type of file loss. Wow. List critical systems that can't be down. So you've got to know what systems are running in your company and cannot allow you, that you have to have to be running. If you're a manufacturing plant and you've got an ERP and you've got trucks in your, in your bay, you've got to make sure that they get what they need and you replace what they need. All right. So now you also need to list all of your in this disaster recovery plan, you need to list your software, phone numbers, internet vendors, and how, and how to get in contact with them and including the account numbers. That, those things are often forgotten in the disaster recovery plan. Uh, instructions to get your phones forwarded to cell phones. You don't want to try to figure this out the day of some disaster has happened in your office. And last but not least, you need, definitely need to know who your insurance company is. You don't want to lose that number. Sorry about the slide deck there. It was kind of bouncy. All right. So the types of backups. So we've got file backup. That is simply backing up the files, the Word, the Excel documents, the PowerPoint documents, whatever files are relevant to your business. Simply backing up those files alone. That's, that's one type of backup. Um, an off-site file backup. Backing up the same files, but dumping them into the cloud somewhere, such as Carbonite, CrashPlan, Mosey. There, there are other ones as well. That's just three. Um, often considered file backup plans are Dropbox, iCloud, and OneDrive. They do have the ability for versioning, and they do essentially make a backup of your files, but it's, it's not the same as a full backup plan that's being kept long-term. And then there's the bare bones complete server backup. This one, this is usually the hardest concept uh, to get my clients to understand the difference between this backup and the file backup. So this backup is backing up the complete server. It's backing up the settings of the server, the programs on the server, the files on the server, uh, everything, the IP addresses of the server, everything that is needed to make that server come back up and running. That's what this backup is doing, not just the files. The files are part of that, but it's getting everything. Uh, so we like to have local copy of the backup server, and then we want to have offsite. And then also in the cloud. So you can have a local backup, you can have an offsite backup, and you can have a cloud backup. Well, cloud and offsite are essentially the same. All right. So how can I quickly get my files? I'm going to talk to, or well, what this is here are the methods by recovering your files. Okay, so the first method is shadow copies. Your administrator should have this set up on your file server so that you right click the file that you want or folder and it'll show the previous versions. Uh, we typically do two backups per day, one at 7 a.m., one at noon. So if it's 3 o'clock, you may be able to recover back to the noon version of the file that you're working on. Uh, it does not require administrative permission or access to do this. You can do this yourself as a user. 
and you don't have to pull in the IT administrator, so it's very fast. Okay, and then local backups. This is this is fast too, but you've now got to get the administrator involved so he can restore the files. He or she can restore the files from local backup, and if it's in a complete system recovery, uh, so you know the system has been encrypted, recovering that entire server uh, can take hours. But it's still better than. Uh, not having it at all where you could take weeks to get a new computer, new server, getting everything built and set up. Okay. And then off-site backups. This this also will take hours to restore. Uh, even unless you've got one just hot spare ready to go and the larger enterprises do. Uh, but in an SMB, so you're still looking at hours of restoring an off-site copy to the local server. Uh, or if you if you want like our clients, we have a local server. They back up locally to us, and then we could bring them a spare server with their backup image running on it right away. So that's a real nice thing. Uh, if you choose the wrong vendor, like we were talking about Carbonite and Mosey and CrashPlan, there are different versions of, of that backup service. And if you pick up the wrong one, there's no way to get your files other than downloading them, which can take days, weeks, and Peter even told me they had to do an initial uh, setup, and it was, um, you know, took over a month to get their data where it needed to be. Uh, often these cloud providers will also offer the service of sending you a drive with all the files, but keep in mind, that's only the files. Okay. Virtualization of failed servers. This is the thing that's going to speed up the recovery process. You go from downtime of a complete disaster reduced from days to hours. If your office has failed, or even if your server has simply failed, uh, and you've, you've lost the server, to take that backup, put it in as a virtual machine, and like I said, it'll take a couple hours to do that, but it's your backup and running and the entire system is back up and running. So that virtual server can be brought, brought back online in your office, in your managed service provider's office, like I described, we do that for our clients, or the cloud. Uh, so there are also services out there where you can do your backups to the cloud, like StorageCraft and LogicNow have backup systems now. You back up the entire system to their cloud, and then you can spin it up as a virtual machine in their cloud environment test monthly the offsite backup to make sure it works. This is the good thing about virtualization. So I've got a copy of my client servers offsite at my office on my servers. I can spin them up as a virtual machine and make sure that that backup works and will continue to work. We test that every 30 days to make sure that it is, it is going. Where you really can't do that in the office because you've got the existing server in the office running. You cannot bring up a copy of it. Uh, there's some ways around that, but you certainly wouldn't want to bring up a live version of the live server. That would cause you problems. Okay. So off-site storage has benefits of ensuring that the data is secure and compliant. Now our HIPAA compliance or our HIPAA clients are required to have disaster recovery in place for their systems. Their EMR system has to be independent of their office or being backed up with disaster recovery plans in place. 
the off-site storage, the data has to be encrypted on-site, in transit, and then in stasis. So if somebody steals the backup, they do have they do have a copy of the data, but it's encrypted, and they they're not going to be able to get into it for a very long time. And unfortunately, though, that's still a HIPAA violation that has to be reported, even if you they steal the encrypted data. But that's not why we're here. Okay, and I have have worked with a couple companies who have been bought out recently, and the potential buyer is looking for a disaster recovery plan in place before they're going to buy it. Okay, 24/7 monitoring. The backups you can't just set them and forget them. They've got to they've got to be monitored. Things drives get full, backups fail, servers change, so keeping an eye on those things will keep you from having a disaster down the road. Monitoring for failures and fix them, just fix them as they go. And then as I also mentioned, regularly test the restores. Uh, you, Microsoft has releases patches that will sometimes affect your backup software and if you don't boot that thing up and see that it gets a blue screen from that patch, you'll never know. So test them. All right, this is a to-do task for your current administrator. Uh, make sure, in order to protect themselves from malware, they also want to make sure that the drive or NAS or wherever they're storing their backups is not browsable from the users or really from the administrator if possible because if the, if the crypto locker gets on the network and starts encrypting everything else on the network, so is your backup. So don't let that happen. All right, so I'm going to give you my recommendations. You wouldn't want to hear about all this if I wouldn't tell you what I would recommend. Um, we recommend setting up shadow copies to run at 7 a.m. at noon every day so that users can recover their own files without having to make a ticket. Users love not having to make a ticket, at least mine do. Uh, the backup the entire server daily take incremental backups during the day as needed by the client. So having that discussion with the client saying how important is your data? How important is your data? What could you afford your downtime? This will decide how many incremental backups you need to take. Some of them wanted every 30 minutes. They couldn't stand to lose more than 30 minutes of data. We we have our clients replicate their encrypted backup files to our servers so in the event that they have a failure, they're not waiting to get it out of the cloud. We can put it on a drive and bring it to their office right away. Uh, we check the servers daily for backup success and we also report to the client weekly and monthly the status of, ev of everything. So we're actually reporting their whole health of their computers but the backup is part of that process. So we recommend they get a weekly notification so that they can feel good they're getting backups. And we create an annual archive. It's nice to have that annual archive just uh, put in the safety deposit box and keep in case something ever really bad went or just need, need some old files. It's good for archiving. And that concludes what I have to say about backups. Peter, I think you are going to close us out here. I think that's mine. So if you can pass me back that presenter role. <clears throat> All right. So here's my happy, cheery synopsis. <laughs> you you got to prepare for the worst. Um, all right, so we're done, right? Not quite. Right. Um, uh -huh.
Yeah, here's the reality. Uh, good things bad, happen to bad people and bad organizations. Even if you've done everything that we said, not just Adam's backups, but things like having modern whitelisting, antivirus, strong firewall, web filters, email filters, and you're training your users, there's still a chance that something could sneak through the filters. You know, an employee, an employee may still fall for a convincing scam. Your backups could fail. Adam, sorry, I mean, I have full, full confidence in your backups, but <laughs> other ones could fail. But this is not an excuse by any means for inaction. I mean, I hear that and I hear people say, well, we can't do anything. There's too many chances. That's pathetic. That's like saying, you know what, if I get into a really bad car accident, even if I'm wearing my seatbelt, I could die. So therefore, I don't wear my seatbelt. All right, that's just plain ridiculous. So you need to have a combination of several different defenses for all the types of threats that you and I are facing today. Only then are you going to have adequate protection against ransomware. But again, unfortunately, even with everything we've covered, nothing is 100% effective. And I challenge this. Any vendor, anybody who tells you that they offer 100% security is lying. Give them my number. I want to have a talk with this person. <laughs> so you've got to do all these different things I said. You need to train your users on an ongoing basis. Here's another thing that we didn't talk about. Buy some insurance. Okay, right now, cyber liability insurance is a fairly inexpensive proposition. Unless you have a specific policy or a specific rider, I can assure you you are not covered for this sort of outage. All right. It's a new type of threat, therefore it's a new type of claim, therefore it's not covered in your policy. So you need to talk with a, you know, an insurance rep that you trust and check because these frequently cite exclusions and things and unless you know you're covered, you're not covered. And here's the worst part. <laughs> you might want to stock up on some Bitcoin. And we didn't talk about this. But Bitcoin, Bitcoin is the online <laughs> currency that is favored by, uh, by, by ransomware attackers because it's anonymous, it's completely untraceable, and it's really easy and convenient. Uh, the trick is that it's not always convenient to initially buy Bitcoin. And here's the other thing, even if you have insurance, there's going to be a lag. There will be some downtime in between the time when you get that, uh, you know, that uh, compensation check and uh, between the time when you can get everything back up and running if you need to hire somebody like us. Uh, we dealt with a system uh, just a couple of months ago when one of our clients, they were completely offline for nine and a half business days. And they did very few of the, um, the, the steps that we recommended. It was a textbook case, and I am actually writing it up as a case study. So you want to have some Bitcoin on, on hand because chances are you may, if, especially if you haven't taken all the steps that we have said, if you get hit, it's going to be too late, and you will have no choice but to pay the ransom and hope that the thieves are honorable. I, I can't believe I just said that. <laughs> <laughs> and they're going to restore your data for you, all right? So it's not a good proposition. So really, you, you, listen, take some of these steps. So we're going to wrap up, and each of us has a special offer just for folks who are listening today. Um, because I'm talking currently, I'm going to go first. If you are on this webinar right now, uh, go to our website, 
paradigmcc.com. It's spelled right there. I won't try to spell it for you right now. Visit our contact page, fill it out, mention this webinar, and say you are requesting the free intrusion test on your firewall. So if you do that, what we will do is I will perform an intrusion test on your firewall and we can do that remotely. Uh, this is an offer, I'm extending it to anyone in the greater Boston area and I'll even go up into uh, central Vermont and New Hampshire as far as this goes for, for this offer. This isn't a service that we normally provide standalone. This is normally something I would do if I was performing a security assessment or an audit or a penetration test. So I can't tell you what it's worth what I can tell you is that I have seen competitors charging upwards of $3,000 for this. So that is my offer. And with that, I'd like to hand it back to Tim and or Adam and hear what you guys have to say. Okay, uh, this is Tim. And uh, to any of the attendees in the Raleigh-Durham Chapel Hill area of North Carolina, uh, what we are going to uh, be providing is uh, we're going to be providing a free lunch and learn for your employees so that you can actually get uh, your employees trained and up to speed on the threats that are out there and uh, get a free lunch out of it. Also, we'll do a basic security audit where we'll do just basic security checking, uh, walk around. If you want a full security audit, we can discuss that, uh, but we'll present the things that we find and see after discussing things with your staff. Uh, if you want to take advantage of this, go to our website, which is rcor.com slash lunch and you can sign up there or you can email me directly. Uh, my email address is tim at rcor.com. Adam? Okay. okay. And then uh, my offer we're offering disaster recovery advisory guide and data backup. There we go. Show my screen here so we can get the URL for you. Okay, so the Disaster Recovery Advisory Guide and Data Backup Audit, you can download that from my website. Uh, that's, I'm sorry, the Advisory Guide, you download that from sublimecomp.com, DR Guide, and that's free. And we will do a backup audit, so we'll take a look at your existing backup systems and just give you a reality check, tell you what you've got and uh, what we would recommend, and you can do that. Uh, sign up for our at our website, our form, and of course I'm in the Nashville area, so the Nashville metro area. If you're, that's it. Did we want to cover questions? All right, guys. Well, those. Yeah, we have some questions coming in, so let me uh, let me get these here for uh, all the folks that were on today. So. I'm not sure. I think it was Adam had mentioned about uh, a business continuity disaster recovery plan and making it uh, a requirement for some levels of compliance. Do you have any examples, Adam, where a, you know a healthcare organization uh, failed a HIPAA audit because they didn't have a disaster recovery plan in place? No, I do not. I don't have any examples of that, but I do know that that they have been directed. And so certain levels of, uh, of medical have not had requirements. Uh, last year, uh, all my chiropractors in 2015, they, they got notified and they went nuts with making sure that they were compliant. My medical health practices, uh, they are 
in that this year they had been kind of excluded but everybody else prior to that it's um, I mean they're past due if they don't have if they don't have an off-site disaster recovery plan in place for their data then they're not in compliance so I haven't had any of my clients be audited but I would probably still have the scars from it <laughs> Yeah, great. Uh, okay, so fantastic. Now, I don't know. I'm going to open the phone up for all three, and you guys can jump in and see who wants to address it. But, uh, you know, when when is when is all this cybersecurity going to stop? When is it going to be, you know, you know, uh, when is it going to subside, or, or is it ever going to subside? <laughs> it, it's only going to get more. It is only going to get more. Uh, it, every single day, new variants and new ways of uh, ways of getting into your system uh, are there. Uh, I think the only time it will stop is when uh, we stop using computers. Yeah, the, the problem is that, as I said in my slide deck, we are humans. Humans make mistakes. And we continually make the same mistakes over and over again. I am constantly finding the same type of errors that I was finding 15 years ago. And just because you're running a new version of Microsoft Word doesn't mean you can't do the same silly things that caused it to be vulnerable now that you did 15 years ago. So until we learn, and we humans are really bad learners, this is going to be a continuous problem. And, and great points, guys. And no, another question that came in, and I think, I'm not sure if it was Tim or Peter that addressed this, about clicking links in emails. And uh, one of the attendees makes a point of saying, well, if I didn't click on a link to come to this webinar, I would have never registered. So when, when do you know an email is safe uh, versus you know, something that's malicious, even if it's from somebody that you trust? Uh, is, there, is there tools, is there software that they can purchase that can, can you know, let the good ones through and, and, uh, and stop the bad ones? Tim, you want this or you want me to? Let me uh, let me point uh, it for okay. or I, I, oh, fine. Adam can just railroad right <laughs> there. You go. There you go. So, well, Peter covered this in uh, in in part. So, employee education is the biggest thing that's going to help them because they're not going to get a software that's going to just make their life easier. But as Peter mentioned, the employee education and being able to look at a link and hover, at least taking the time to hover over it and see if it is really irs.gov or if it is badguysnetwork.com. So employee education is the answer to that. But Tim and Peter had something as well. I, 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 think, I think that's part of it. Uh, I think the other part of it is, in my mind, twofold. One is having a good uh, email spam filtering software set up within your email. And number two is to have uh, some basic content filtering in your firewall to have where, uh, where known bad sites are excluded from where you're able to go to. Now, um, you, Stuart, you, you mentioned that the person said, you know, how would they have gotten, gone into this? Well, uh, this is using a go-to webinar, which is a, a, a known 
good site where they could have signed up for it. Uh, and it, so it would have been allowed through, whereas uh, a site that is uh, unknown or a known bad site would be blocked. Uh, Peter, what do you think? Yeah, absolutely. Um, the You can filter these kinds of things. There's always a risk that, again, if a good website gets compromised, a good compromised, you know, a good site that you trust could still be used to lure you into something bad. So that's where hopefully you have a decent, um, you know, whitelist uh, that's going to keep it from running something malicious. But yeah, clicking a link, that's it's hard. It's a judgment call. And I remember when I started my first uh, blog post in uh, for Paradigm, the very first thing I said was uh, I, I did not include a link. I said, uh, I, I emailed my, my customers and I told them that it was on our website, but I wasn't giving a link for them to click on because that was a bad idea. And nobody went to my website uh, <laughs> they know how to get there. Uh, I, I, I mean, I mean, another option, you know, if you do click on it, is to have a good antivirus program that has heuristic scanning, which is it doesn't just scan for known threats; it scans for threat-like activity, so that it, it will many times catch things that are unknown, that just are virus-like. You know, walk like a duck, talk like a duck, probably a duck. <laughs> well, I had a user recently that the spam filter caught it and said, this is most likely malware. Be very cautious with this email. I mean, and they had to go to the spam filter to read it. So they logged into another portal, went to the spam filter, and allowed it. <laughs> Opened it up. I want that. I want that. Install more viruses, please. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. A lot of that is, is, is education. Yeah. Stuart, do we have any more questions? Stuart. Did we lose Stuart? Oh, we I knocked him out. No, I was on mute. I'm back. I'm back. I was on mute. <laughs> Um, I was talking I was talking away to myself and uh, going, where are you guys are saying Stuart, Stuart? Anyway, last question that came in was uh, around advertising, online advertising. Um, and we're starting to read more reports around, you know, even spam and uh, out and these hackers, you know, buying Google advertising to to attract people to click on their malicious websites. Um, again, how do you defend against something like that? Is there, you know, is it it's still back to user education, or is there uh, in a better or or content filtering? Are those are those the answers to uh, you know prevent that kind of infection? Block ads. You can block ads. Simple as that. <laughs> Run an ad blocker. Yep. Peter hit on it, but I don't think we actually mentioned the. We did mention the web filtering, but having the a stronger going with a whitelist web filtering would also help. Yeah, uh, a whitelist uh, on your you know antivirus on your firewall and your web filter is definitely useful for something like this. Um, but you definitely, you know, if you do block ads, you're lowering your attack surface. And this again gets back to least privilege. Most people who are using the web, whether it's for business or personal use, do not require access to online advertisements. Right? Now there are exceptions, of course, but I'll bet you most people who are listening today or watching right now don't need to view web ads 
to do their job. So that's the fix. It's that whole. Uh, Gee, that just blows away our whole marketing. Uh, that just blows away part of our marketing uh, efforts then by running Google Ads. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> now, well, the good news is for you, for gentlemen, you that who are in marketing though is that Google and Facebook and Microsoft and all the other ad uh, companies are always working on ways to get around ad blockers. So there's hope. <laughs> there is. Gentlemen, this has been a great uh, information session. I'm going to pass the baton around one more time just for any closing comments. I'll start with Tim. Well, uh, what I want everyone to make sure that they concentrate on, in, in my estimation, is the biggest thing is employee education. Uh, make sure that your employees uh, know what tools are offered to them, uh, know uh, what threats are out there, and it's a continual process. Um, uh, I'm going to let Adam say that it's backups, but uh, I'm I'm going to go with employee education. Uh, Peter, yeah, uh, just just follow the list. You know, we've we've given you the, the the big punch list of things that you can do. If you do those things, you will be so better positioned to recover quickly from this. I can't even begin to tell you. And uh, it's so much nicer than being taken, you know, having your business being taken down for a week or a month or shutting down permanently. Well, and of course, backups. So, I mean, I've had I've had customers who've gotten malware. I mean, they've gotten uh, CryptoLocker on their entire server, and we have good things in place all along the way. But the last step, the you know. The last step before you call the insurance guy is the uh, is the backups and being able to recover and get back from from the ransomware if you get it. Don't get it. Well, fantastic guys, uh, and thanks again for the uh, great uh, information session. That wraps up all the questions, and uh, and we still had a, a good number of turn uh, people on the webinar today to stay right to the bitter end. So fantastic. Um, so. Uh, I think I'll uh, close it off and thank everyone for joining us today. And if you have any questions, feel free to take up, uh, you know, Peter, uh, Adam, and Tim on their offers. Some great information there. And uh, stay tuned for our next uh, webinar. We'll be announcing that uh, shortly uh, on email, and we'll make sure the links are, uh, you know, properly identified so that uh, you won't see there's uh, any potential risk to your business. Anyway, guys, thanks again, and thanks everyone for joining us today. Thanks, guys. Thank, thank you. you. To contact either us or our guests, visit BlurringTheLinesPodcast.com. If you like what you're hearing, do us a solid and subscribe to our podcast. And leave us a five-star review in iTunes, Google Play Store, or wherever you found us.